Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, we had win the day under Chip Kelly at the University of Oregon. That very quickly turned to do something with Willie Taggart. Remember that? Then Mario Cristobal, he had something about establishing culture. I don't know if you, I don't know if you checked that out. Something about establishing culture. Well, there's a new motto at the University of Oregon. They've got a new offensive coordinator. Feed the studs. Somebody get that on a T-shirt. Oregon's offensive coordinator's new offensive coordinator, Will Stein, is apparently ready to cook on offense. I took a dive on him, found out a little bit about him, wrote about him today at johnconzano.com. If you subscribe, you already have some of those thoughts. I'm going to go much deeper on this show. But uh, I'm told that Will Stein and Dan Lanning have only spent about an hour together since he was hired. They've both been out on the road together recruiting and apart recruiting. And the plan is for the Oregon's head coach and the new offensive coordinator hire to get together this weekend when Oregon is hosting some recruits on official campus business, they're supposed to get together uh, this weekend, and they're supposed to uh, you know, sort of talk and formulate their plan and do what coaches and coordinators do, I guess. But it got me thinking about the mindset that Oregon has when it comes to its offensive coordinator position, its head coach, football in general, it got me thinking about Oregon State. It got me thinking about Washington State, Washington, the whole Pac-12. Because if you are a coach at the University of Oregon in this era of football, the emphasis completely and obviously is on recruiting. See, it didn't used to be all about recruiting. Like coaches always said, give me better players. Of course, they wanted the best possible player that they could get. But it, it, a lot of times it was about development of players it was about culture. It, you know, Rich Brooks and Mike Pilati, much in the same way, like if you look over at Oregon State and you see what Pat Casey was doing in baseball, Brooks and Pilati just needed some of the good players, not all of the good players. And what they would do is take three-star players and develop them into NFL prospects. They did that a number of times. There's some players that I think that coaching staff at Oregon is insanely proud of. A kid like T.J. Ward, Patrick Chung, those kind of guys, they insanely proud of those guys because they developed, uh, weren't highly recruited players in the case of Ward, and, and developed into guys that played in the NFL. And there was a lot of pride, I think, in doing it that way, and there was a lot of culture built because you had slow growth, you had progression, you had Oregon sort of investing in kids, but the real investment that was being made by the University of Oregon was in the coaches. Like, they hired and then retained a coaching staff that was unheard of 
even at that time, to see coaches stay as assistant coaches in a program for 25 or 30 years. Just unheard of. And Oregon did it. And in this era of Oregon football, really after Mike Bellotti, as it was handed to Chip Kelly and then handed to Mark Helfrich, let's be real about what that progression was about because I talked to the parties that were involved in that and I have picked their brains and said, okay, what were you thinking at the time when you handed the operation from Chip Kelly to Mark Helfrich? And the thinking was that you know Chip Kelly was pushing really hard behind the scenes for Mark Helfrich to get the job. He wanted his offensive coordinator to take over. He wanted that continuity. Like anybody who's built something, I think he wanted to look back and go, hey, it didn't disintegrate in my wake. And so Chip Kelly was pushing for Mark Helfrich, went to great lengths, even when he said, hey, I'm leaving for the Philadelphia Eagles, to tell Oregon, hey, the right move here is to promote Mark Helfrich and just keep this going. And I think at the time it probably was the right move, right? I mean, it got Oregon two years later, to the national championship game. Marcus Mariota takes uh, wins the Heisman Trophy. Oregon ends up uh, beating Florida State in the semifinal, goes to the national title game. It paid off. The long-term effect at that time, though, was Mark Helfrich uh, sort of uh, plateaued. And, you know, he did what his job was supposed to be. Like, if we're being fair to health, the job at the time was keep this thing that Chip Kelly had going, keep it going. And he did. He got him to the national title game. And Oregon fell short against Ezekiel Elliott, Cardell Jones, Ohio State. We all know that. But now in this era of Oregon Ducks football, what we're seeing is huge investment in recruiting, huge emphasis placed on the players, less emphasis when making hires on bringing in teachers and developers of talent, and more emphasis on, uh, look, uh, who does this guy know? What area can he recruit? How good is he? And when you look at Oregon's coaching staff, and even last year when you had Tosh LePoy on the defensive side of the ball and you had Kenny Dillingham on the offensive side of the ball, you had a guy at LePoy who came with some baggage and a lot of coaches in college football pointing over going, hey, that's a guy who paints outside the lines. But I think Oregon saw LePoy as a great recruiter who could potentially bring better defensive players to Oregon's roster. And in the, in the mindset in hiring Dan Lanning, period, end stop, is that he is a recruiter. And nobody quite knew what he was doing on Kirby Smart's defense. And I think a lot of people have pointed out since then that, look, he wasn't the coordinator. He was the coordinator in name. He was more of a position coach that was recruiting. And that guy got elevated to D coordinator because that's how Kirby Smart keeps people on his staff is he knows – that the assistant coaches will stick around a couple of few years if they can go from analyst or position coach to coordinator, and it keeps people in the program. It keeps the continuity. But the problem you have at the University of Oregon and some other places that are trying to do that right now is that, you know, Oregon as a name brand, you know, when you're the offensive or defensive coordinator at Oregon, you have a chance to elevate into a head coaching job. And pretty quickly, like as we found with Kenny Dillingham and as we found over the years as Andy Avalos on the defensive side of the ball went to Boise State and Marcus Arroyo went to UNLV. But I think we're now seeing like, you know, hey, it's a bit of a revolving door in those coordinator positions if they have any measure of success. Because this is a job that other programs know they can reach down, they can hire from. But, you know, Oregon right now I think has a really talented 
group of recruiters. I'm not sold, and I said this a year ago when Dan Lanning was hired and he assembled his staff, I'm not sold that they've got great teachers. I'm not sold that they've got great in-game X and O coaches. And they're bringing on Will Stein, who's got a reputation of being a good recruiter, was, was coaching at the University of Texas San Antonio, and then before that was a high school coach in Texas. I mean, he knows where the talent is in Texas. And his offense is very innovative. He wants to spread you out. He wants to have better players. He wants to uh, beat you in a variety of ways. It reminds me a lot of Kenny Dillingham. It's almost like somebody on Twitter said this, and I love it. They said, well, at least we know Dan Lanning has a type when it comes to offensive coordinators. It's true. Like, it, this is Kenny Dillingham 2.0 at Oregon. I think that's fine if you're a Duck fan. But the concern you're going to have to have, and, and I, I saw this from a lot of people after Stein was hired, was, A, is that job going to be a revolving door year to year to year to year? How will that affect the program? And, B, if, if they are recruiting great players, like Mario Cristobal did, he got the best talent that Oregon had ever seen, brought it in. The problem Mario Cristobal had, and the problem that will plague Mario Cristobal until he gets real with himself, is that he was not a great game coach. He could develop players. He could recruit players. The hole in his game was X's and O's, game management, game day. Now, 1998-1999, I was a young beat reporter covering Indiana basketball in the Big Ten Conference, and I was traveling all around the Big Ten, driving from city to city, from Champaign to Evanston to uh, West Lansing to East Lansing to uh, West Lafayette, Purdue, and all this stuff. And uh, I, But what I got a chance to do was to be in daily media news conference settings with Bobby Knight. Now, take what you will about what you've seen on TV with Bobby Knight throwing chairs or yelling at people. I don't even know if you're old enough to remember that Bobby Knight won a national championship or two. But I gleaned some things in that experience that I find myself thinking about even today. All these years later, like 25 years later, I'm looking and I'm going, man, this is the same thing that Knight was talking about. Now, Bobby Knight told me, I asked him one time, I said, what makes a great coach in your mind? Because he was regarded at that time as a Hall of Fame-to-be coach. He was a disciple of Pete Newell. He was... You know, in the uh, shadow of John Wooden, and Bobby Knight was going to elevate and become a Hall of Fame basketball coach, and, you know, what he said was law. And, and it was interesting to me to get his answer on that. And he said there are three facets to coaching. It's just three, and it's the same three he said if you go to basketball, to baseball, to football, to whatnot. He said there's X's and O's. There's can you come out of a timeout? Can you draw up a play? Can you manage a game? Can you, uh, on third and four, know what play to call, know whether to punt down, punt on fourth and one from your own 29 or not? Can you do that part of it, the game management X and O part? That's one part of it. Second part, can you develop and prepare your team, meaning the talent that you have? It's, is it three-star talent? If so, can you make it four-star? If it's four-star talent, can you make some of those guys look like five-star guys? Can you develop your players, and can you prepare them and part of it is sort of the pace of the season. Can you get your team prepared to play the games? That has nothing to do with game management. Do they show up on game day prepared to play the game? Do they have an idea of what the opposition's going to do? Were they well coached during the week? Did they get stronger in the offseason? Can you prepare your team? That's the second pillar of coaching. And then the third pillar of coaching 
really was about recruiting. You know, can you get better players? And if not, can, what can you do in the offseason that mimics that? And I thought that was interesting. Can you get better players or create the illusion of better players? And what Knight meant by that is, hey, if you can recruit better players, go and recruit them. That's great because they show up better on day one. If you can't recruit them, you better have an offseason program that helps your team close the gap on the, on the teams that do. And I find myself now in college, major college basketball and in Power 5 football in particular, thinking about that offseason piece a little differently because the portal exists. Can you attract players in the portal? Can you retain your own talent in the portal? Can you, in the offseason, uh, recruit better young players? Uh, can you, you know, that equation is much more complex, and I think it's why we've seen coaches like David Shaw and Chris Peterson and some others go, to hell with this. I, I, it was hard enough. Those three pillars were hard enough before this. Now, Knight told me, if you can do one of the three things really well, you're a good coach. Meaning, if you can really recruit and you don't have a clue what to do on game day and you don't really know how to prepare your team, you can still be a good coach because you will have better players than the opposition. He even said, look, if you can do uh, two of the three things better, and let me go back to one. If you could do one thing, like let's just say you're you you can't recruit, you're not a good recruiter, you're you're uh, you're not a good game manager, but man, you can really prepare your team. You're still a good coach because your team will be prepared. You'll out prepare the opposition. You'll win some games that way. But he said, if you can do two of the three things better than anybody, like if you can check two of the three boxes, if you can recruit and develop, or recruit and game manage, or if you can develop players and game manage. Then all of a sudden, he said, you go from being good to, um, you, might, you might be great. And he said, if you can do all three, if you can recruit players, if you can develop players, and if you can coach a game, you can come out of a timeout, and you've got a play that's going to work. If you can do all three, you're going to the Hall of Fame. So I'm asking myself through that prism today, as I'm looking at the hire of Will Stein, who I think is just Kenny Dillingham repeated. Like, I think it's fine at Oregon. I think what they're doing is fine. I'm looking at myself and I'm saying, okay, as a coaching staff, what can Oregon do well? They're really recruiting, aren't they? And I think they're recruiting well enough to win nine games a year. They proved that. And Mario Cristobal proved that. Nine or ten games. You can win nine or ten games just recruiting really well. But I think what Oregon really needs to focus on, I think the next you know, sort of evolution of coaching at Oregon is going to be going from, hey, we can really recruit players, to either shoring up the game management, which I think would require them – to make a change with the defensive coordinator position or maybe bring in an analyst consultant who has got some gray hair, somebody who's been there before and seen some stuff, needs to be on that staff. We saw it this season in a couple of key spots where I think Dan Lanning just needed somebody with a headset to go, hey, fourth and one from your own 29, let's, nah, nah, not a good, this isn't a good idea. You're, this is ball game if you don't get it. Fourth and one from your own 34 against Washington, ball game if you don't get it. Maybe not the best idea. If Bo were healthy, yeah, we'd do it. Let's call a timeout here and think about this. He needs somebody like that on his staff. Or he needs to think about the ghosts of Oregon past, the Nick Aliotis, the Gary Campbells, the Steve Greatwoods that walked those halls for 25 to 30 years. The lesson that they were trying to teach Dan Lanning was, hey, man, look over at Utah. They've got continuity. They're not out recruiting anybody. Kyle Whittingham's not out recruiting anybody. He's getting good players now. He's getting better players than he ever imagined because he's had some success. 
But Kyle Whittingham and you built that thing much the same way that Rich Brooks and Mike Bellotti built their thing. Only what you see from Kyle Whittingham is he's, he's, a, he's a magnificent developer of talent. Takes the three-star player, makes him look like, hey, this guy's got a chance to play in the NFL. He does that over and over and over again. You put Cam Rising on his team, they're going to make him better. You put Cam Rising somewhere else in the Pac-12, yeah, it might just be Cam Rising. The other thing that Kyle Whittingham does exceptionally well is he manages a game uh, beautifully. And it's the experience he has, and frankly, it's the experience he has as an offensive and defensive coordinator with Morgan Scally and Andy Ludwig, his two coordinators. He is investing in those guys, and for whatever reason, he's found two coaches that are just happy to be his assistant coaches until he's done. I don't think Andy Ludwig, his offensive coordinator, has a dream about being a head coach in major college football. He's a Cal Poly graduate. He's called plays at Oregon. He's called plays at Vanderbilt. He's been some places. He's been to Cal, and I think he's really happy just being at Utah, eighth year in a row, calling plays, you know, developing players. There's some advantage that they've got there that I don't think Oregon's going to catch up to unless Oregon wakes up. And if Oregon doesn't, isn't careful, they better look over at Oregon State, who just beat him, now beat him two out of three years. Jonathan Smith, what does he do well? He really develops players. You've seen it. He's got continuity of that coaching staff. They're developing and teaching. Then what else does he do? He manages a game better than most. He's not on Whittingham's level, but he is good plus. He's about a B-plus with game management. He's got some room to grow, but he's right there. On the offensive and defensive side of the ball, Oregon State is doing two of those three things well. Now they have a nine-win season in their pocket. They have never been able to recruit as well as Oregon, not in this era. They won't out-recruit Oregon. They're not going to win games on signing day. But Jonathan Smith, if he gets just a little better player, just like Kyle Whittingham, just a little better player, look out. It's why Oregon, I think, has to be careful right now. I like the hire of Will Stein. People keep asking me, what do you think? What do you think of Stein? What do you think of this thing? I like it. I like the mantra. I like that he looks like Dillingham. I think they'll get great players. I think they'll spread the field. I think they'll uh, be fun on offense. But I worry a little bit about the development. I didn't see this roster get better and better and better this season. I don't know if you did. 503-417-7575. What are you thinking about as you think about the future of Oregon football, Oregon State football? I think these two coaches are going to be here a while. I think we're going to get a chance to see them develop and grow as coaches. I even think we've seen some growth in Jonathan Smith in five years. We've watched him fire a defensive coordinator, promote a position coach, really values continuity, values teaching. Dan Lanning reloading, hiring Kenny Dillingham. Dillingham leaves 11 months later. Then he brings in Will Stein, who is a uh, you know Dillingham uh, prototype. Like it's It's just plug and play. I would like to see Dan Lanning shore up his staff with some gray hair coaches. Needs a little bit of seasoning on that staff. If he does, and they can develop a little better and manage the game a little better, look out. I think we got two teams that can win 10, 11, 12 games in the foreseeable future. And that would be the greatest era of Oregon college football that we've ever seen. You've never seen this. Like The closest we've got was Mike Riley sniffing around the Rose Bowl and Chip Kelly saying, nah, not your turn. That's the closest we've got to both programs being on the national stage. That one season, cover of Sports Illustrated, all the hype. I think right now, if Oregon and Oregon State 
fall together in the right way, we're looking at two teams that could play in a Civil War game that determines who's the one seed and who's the two seed going to Las Vegas for the conference championship. I don't think that's a pipe dream. 503-417-7575. Take your phone calls. Let's talk some college football. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, Brittany Griner is home or coming home. Saw that news today. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. I, uh, anytime there's an arms dealer involved in a trade in sports, I, uh, it gives me pause. I, uh, I guess I'm glad, I, more than guess, I am glad that she's coming home. I do feel a little weird about knowing the fact that she's a high-profile athlete, plays a role in us negotiating her release i wonder if it were you me somebody else a marine if uh we would have been able to pull that deal off or if we would have been willing to pull that deal off anybody else uh troubled by that no i think you hit it on the head there i mean i think i'm happy that she's back um again i don't you know it's hard to say what's a good deal what's not i'm not in the room like i'm just happy that she's back but uh yeah it's disappointing that it's like the athletes are now turning into political figures, all this kind of thing. Like it, it's yeah. just one big, uh, one big cluster. But yeah, of course, obviously, happy she's back in time for Christmas and with her family. It's not a trade Bob Myers would have made, you know, Warriors yeah. GM. I, I, I keep thinking like, you know, he got, you give up an arms dealer for a WNBA player, and I'm going, okay, what about the Marine who's still, who's still uh, in captivity there and and still being held in Russia? And I just, you know, I don't know, I. Don't, and it's not to say that I don't want Brittany Griner free. I mean, I don't want that people to think that's my position. I just uh, I don't know how comfortable any of us should be with any of that. Yeah, um, especially with the Merchant of Death or whatever his nickname yeah. was. Like that. I mean, that just it seems very yeah. uh, very bad. But yeah. that's just me. Yep, I'm with you. Um, uh, just uh, gave me gave me a pause when I saw that this morning, and I was like, do I really want to write about this? Do I want to talk too much about it? And I. And for me, it's like, okay, I think we can all be simultaneously happy that Brittany Griner's free. I mean, it must have been a really traumatic experience for her, for her family, uh, all of that. But at the same time, um, I, I don't. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up an arms dealer for a WNBA player. Like that's that doesn't to me sound like a great trade. But I maybe there's more to it that I don't understand. Maybe I don't. Uh, maybe I'm clearly not an expert on diplomacy and Russian-U.S. Uh, uh, relations. So that there's that, too. Um, hey, as I'm, talking about, uh, as I'm talking about Dan Lanning and I'm talking about Jonathan Smith and coaching in general, guys, what, you know, what, what, what kind of topics or what comes to mind? Am I reading it right that I feel like Dan Lanning could strum a guitar for about the next four or five years, recruit well, coach, do his thing, get better as a coach. I think we're going to watch him grow. And I think Oregon could win nine or ten games a year doing that. I think the difference between winning nine and ten or winning 11 and 12 is going to be can he develop and can he manage a game. It's those second two pillars. I agree with you. And I also think it has to do with how – okay, because, you know, 
there's been talk of how much did he really have to do with that Georgia defense, right? He wasn't the play caller. He was Kirby Smart. Is he really going to be a defensive genius on that side of the ball? It wasn't this year. That's for sure. The Ducks defense was not very good this year. They were can't, bad. They were, they were bad. bad on defense. They're bad. Yeah. So can he get that defense up to snuff, up to that level? Not the Georgia level, but to be towards the top of the Pac-12. I think that is a legitimate question that we need to ask about Dan Lanning. But I'm with you. I think that he can just kind of strum his way through nine, ten wins. Um, but if you do that, I think with the way Oregon State is going and Jonathan Smith, how he has, how he has that program humming, they might be the second-best program in the state if he continues to do it that way. So you got to be careful right now. I think, I think Oregon State has all the momentum on their side, and Jonathan Smith really has got that thing going. So if you're Dan Landing, I think, and I don't think you know, I don't question this, I think he's going to work hard. I think he's going to continue to get better, but you got to be careful at this point. I think, too, you, we saw some signs this year, and I think I don't think they would have been as evident had we not been through kind of the Mario Cristobal era. We saw some signs this year that kind of tell us, hey, there, there's some game management problems. And, and I said this, and we talked about this before the season started. I said there would be growing pains. I said that, they're, that he's going to lose a game or two that, that he shouldn't lose because he's a young head coach. And I looked at his staff, and I kept waiting, like, okay, are they going to hire a Dennis Erickson? Are they going to bring in a Mike Riley? Are they going to you know, bring in a Jeff Tedford type to sit on the shoulder of one of the coordinators? Just somebody in there who, like I said earlier, has seen some stuff, who's been through some stuff. Because when you have that person on your staff, there's just institutional knowledge. There's situational wisdom that comes up from having, I don't want to call it a mentor, but it's almost like having a mentor in the room when you're calling a game. And I think Oregon hurt itself several times this year. I think the voice that should have been heard in the room at some point should have been, hey, are we running Bo Nix a little too much in meaningless games? Because they were running him. They were running him against Cal. They were running him in games that they were winning going away. And really, if we learn anything by watching sort of the gurus, Kyle Whittingham, you know, used Cam Rising running the football against UCLA, used him against uh, USC, then shut him down, and really even shut him down in the Oregon game. And then all of a sudden brought him back in the Pac-12 championship game, Cam Rising again, attacking with his feet. And I thought that was really interesting because it it's, it's the wisdom of somebody going, hey, we don't need Cam Rising to run 14 times a game in all these games that we can win going away. We don't need him against Colorado. We don't need him against Cal. We're going to need him against USC if we get to the title game. So I thought that was really interesting to see kind of, you know, Utah's staff do some things that Oregon staff wasn't. So you learn that. The other thing that happens is when you go to go for it on fourth and one from your own 34 against Washington, that gray-haired assistant who's in the booth weighs in and goes, hey, let's take a beat here. Let's call a timeout. We got one. Let's think about this. And, you know, I think that's that's really valuable, and especially if it's somebody Dan Lanning trusts. So I don't know if it's somebody from Dan Lanning's past. I don't know if he's crossed paths with a head coach who's got a bunch of experience who maybe is going to be out of a job. But I feel like there's a position on Oregon staff, much in the same way where Mario Cristobal brought in Joe Moorhead and he brought in Tim DeRuiter two former head coaches to be his coordinators, he got a little better. In what game did Mario Cristobal struggle with game management last that last season? It was the Stanford game. He struggled. Guess what? Joe Moorhead was in a hospital. It, it became evident, I think, on that day how much Joe Moorhead meant to Mario Cristobal's season. 
having somebody who had the wisdom to go, hey, man, uh, you know, let's run a little something different here. You know, I've seen that I've been in some battles. I've seen some stuff. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, it looks like the Falcons are going to bench Marcus Mariota. They've made a change at quarterback. They're going to turn to rookie Desmond Ritter. They are uh, benching the veteran uh, former Heisman Trophy winner, according to ESPN. Uh, Falcons have lost four of five. They've struggled to score points, lost to the Steelers on Sunday. Arthur Smith uh, said he would be evaluating every position during the bye week. The Falcons are on a bye. And uh, Ritter has been sitting behind Mariota, third-round draft pick. And we all kind of expected Ritter at some point might see the field. But, uh, you know, I, I think I've been watching Mariota. I'm as big a Mariota advocate as there is in the media. I believe in the guy, but he there's something not right with him this season. And I in the last couple of weeks, I've really watched him and thought, gosh, why is he not as accurate as he used to be, even in Tennessee? Why is he struggling? Why is he missing guys? And over the years, I have felt like in Tennessee, especially, he didn't have uh, he didn't have a great uh, cast of receivers. He's been without Kyle Pitts with the Falcons, but that's not the problem. He's just been missing guys, and his completion percentage during the last five weeks they've gone one and four is been under sixty five percent. And under 55%. And guess what? He's never thrown for more than 186 yards. He's thrown five touchdowns and three interceptions. He doesn't look as comfortable back there. He um, He's really struggling. And he's been off target. Uh, ESPN stats and information said he's been off target on 20% of his throws this season. Which uh, puts him about third worst in the NFL. Um, I won't root against Desmond Ritter. I won't. I I am interested to see what he can do. Cincinnati quarterback had 44 starts in college. But if this really is sort of the end of the Marcus Mariota era, I feel that maybe his best health, maybe his best years were given to a Titans organization that was busy switching head coaches and switching coordinators. And, man, isn't it a cautionary tale? for quarterbacks who are highly picked in this league. And when you look at the top draft picks um, that are picked every year in the NFL, I always say, gosh, it's great that you know they are getting picked high, but I'm also going good luck because a lot of those situations are bad situations. And if you look at even the upcoming draft, and people going, you know, oh, C.J. Stroud, you know, he, he might be the, the top quarterback taken, or Bryce Young might be the top quarterback taken. I'm always like, well, good luck to them. It might be better if they were like the fifth best quarterback and end up in a much better situation because I think that stuff um, definitely matters. And I think we could ask guys like Joey Harrington, who went to the Detroit Lions, or Achilles Smith, who went to the Bengals once upon a time, and, and frankly – um, when you look back in the uh, history of the NFL, the recent history of the NFL, there are some examples of guys who have had some success. 
like Joe Burrow. But there are a lot of examples of quarterbacks who came into the league, it's a very unforgiving league, get drafted highly and just get destroyed or have the team around them just disintegrate. And, you know, I'm even kind of watching Justin Herbert, and I'm going, well, at least when he came into the league, he had a couple of few weeks that he got to sit on the bench and get something. So maybe the gift that the Falcons have in being able to start Marcus Mariota to this point of the season is that Desmond Ritter has had an opportunity to kind of sit and wait and see, and the Falcons, you know, aren't out of things. They're 5-8, and eight and they're still kind of in it. But here we are with them playing 13 games, and he had an opportunity, you know, to not have the pressure on him for 13, 14 weeks of this NFL season. So maybe that's what the Falcons were after the whole time. That might be true. I still think Mariota's got some football left to play. Like, in fact, as a 49er fan, I wish he were the backup in San Francisco because I'd feel a lot better with Marcus Mariota leading a 49ers team that instead of Brock Purdy at this point with Jimmy Garoppolo out. But uh, the Mariota era in Atlanta appears to have taken a turn in uh, with the 5-8 and eight Falcons during their bye week on a two-game losing streak. will uh, apparently hand the keys to Desmond Ritter for now. And you know what Mariota will do? He'll do what he's always done. He will get up in the morning. He'll make his bed. He will, uh, you know, help Ritter all he can. He'll be classy. He'll say the right things. We've been through this. We've seen him do this. But, man, I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at that draft that gave us Jameis Winston and Mariota 1-2, and two, and who's the better quarterback, who's the better pro. And I'm looking back going, man, uh, you know, both guys had some moments. Uh, both guys uh, had a lot of promise around them. Uh, but if you uh, really are looking for uh, you know a, a success story between the two of them, I'm just wondering if they would have been better off not picked one or two in the draft. They probably would have. Get a chance to sit, get a chance to wait, uh, get a chance maybe to season a little bit. Uh, and I think too that you know if if you're thinking about you know the the top-rated quarterbacks in the NFL today, and you're looking at okay, what is the success? of guys that are picked high like Patrick Mahomes is a great example like he's he's a generational talent in Kansas City but came into the league with an injury he is the number one rated quarterback in the NFL right now he's the guy that everybody would like to have after him it's Tua it's Josh Allen it's Jalen Hurts and I think it's interesting to kind of look at that grouping and go hey you know of those three like Josh Allen got thrown to the dogs right away but of those three or four there was there was some there was some sitting and waiting and i'm wondering do we think do you think that's accidental coincidental that you get like a guy like mahomes came into the league he was hurt he got to sit tua was hurt he got to sit jalen hurts like you know there was some there was some opportunity for these guys to kind of get into the league and look around a little bit before they had to start games I think best case scenario, you always want the young quarterback to sit at least a little bit, whether it's you know four weeks, eight weeks, a year, whatever it is. I think you want him to, but right now in the NFL, it's so much. It's just like college football now with the transfer portal. Like you got to win, you got to produce right now. And so I think for NFL teams, they need to see these guys. We've seen the Cardinals go off of Josh Rosen after one season, right? They then went with Kyler Murray. Now they're going to make a decision with him. I think the NFL is such a win now league that you got to see what you get in those quarterbacks early on. And I think it is to the detriment of the quarterbacks because a lot of times 
when these quarterbacks are getting thrown in as a young for you know a young team is throwing in this young quarterback, that team's not very good. And so you're putting a lot of that quarterback, and if he's not ready to go, he's gonna look bad, and it's just gonna be you know tough for him to bounce back. I think Marcus has been in that type of situation his whole career, and now he's gonna be a career backup because of it. Not saying that he wouldn't have been, but now for sure he's gonna be backup. Kind of had his last chance, but I think if you're a team like. I mean, look at the 49ers, right? Like, they were going to give Trey Lance that year off. It would have been really interesting to see how he played this season if he didn't get hurt because that team is really good around him. Like, if he failed with that team around him, then you can say, okay, he's not very good, but it seemed like it would have been just fine. Yeah, I would like to see stuff. And I, you know, and I think, too, I'm looking at it, and I, I do remember Josh Allen coming into the league and, you know, remember his rookie season. It wasn't pretty. Like, you know, it was, you know, you could see the promise of him, but. You also, it was like you were looking at a guy who didn't have a lot around him. And credit to the Bills, I mean, and they built, they built around Josh Allen. But uh, you know, when you look at the other three of the other top four quarterbacks in the league, like Jalen Hurts only had four starts his rookie year. Like, and I think it's interesting. Like Tua came in and he was hurt, and and Patrick Mahomes came in and he was hurt. And I, I don't think it's accidental. I think, and I don't think it's coincidental. I think. Having the opportunity to sit, so I I want to give the Falcons a little bit of credit here because it appears to me that they had a plan. Like if Mariota had been a home run and was playing over his head, playing his best football, I think they probably would have stayed with him, and they'd be a playoff team. But this is you know this is not worst case scenario. They're still within striking distance of a wild card spot at five and eight. They could win, hell they could win that division. You know they're game behind the Buccaneers really, and so I think. They have that, and then, hey, let's. the kids had a chance to sit for 13 weeks. Let's see what he's got. Still, though, it is kind of sad to see somebody that, you know, I mean, if you can't root for Marcus Mariota, who are you rooting for? Like, you know, he's the guy that stops and gives a granola bar to a homeless person and is the guy that, you know, says a prayer when the ambulance goes by. And, you know, we all saw what a classy kid he was in college. Really easy to root for. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with his career and with the Falcons for the rest of this season. Our big splash is coming up. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I feel like I'm in the club. <laughs> or I'm at one of those. I feel like I should have a glow stick. No? I've got one right now. Yeah, I was going to say, me and Peter are just vibing right now. I just think the lights are flashing. I like it. It's a little different, but I like it. Um, you know, I was looking at the quarterbacks during the commercial break. Is there, better, is there a better value in the NFL than Geno Smith right now with the Seahawks? No. Like, did, How do you explain Geno Smith? Man, I, I mean, fit an opportunity. He sure had a long time to just sit and watch in New York yeah. after his initial uh, uh, experience of being ruined, uh, like all quarterbacks uh, do when they go to New York. It, it's unbelievable. It just goes to show, look, it's a it's a quarterback-centric league. It's a quarterback-centric sport, but it's so much about fit, opportunity, and surrounding talent. I'm, really, I'm not a Geno Smith fan or a Seahawks fan, but, man, I'm loving watching this guy put it together this late in his career. How greedy should he be this this off season? Because there's you know there's talks you know the the Seahawks want him back. Contract talks are supposed to happen after the end of the season. 
but uh, the average salary for a starting quarterback in the league, excluding rookies, is $32 million a year. And the Seahawks are looking at him going, he's 32 years old. We could pick a quarterback early in the draft because uh, Denver's first-round pick, which Seattle owns, is going to, right now, if the season ended today, be the number three pick, guys. And uh, that would be a home run trade for the Seahawks. But, um, you know, are they are they willing to pay Geno Smith or match an offer sheet for another team that comes after him? Or is this just a one-year hit for the, for the Seahawks? I, I think if you're the Seahawks, you probably try to split the difference there, and maybe you pay him but not in a super long-term deal, and you still look to get maybe that next quarterback in the draft. It's so funny. The plan was obviously, you know, Smith for a year, maybe two, and you use your own pick to maybe, you know, get Alabama's quarterback or C.J. Stroud or something like that. It's kind of funny that it's going to end up being Denver's pick. But to your point last segment about you want this guy to kind of be able to watch for a season and maybe get in in some garbage time or fill in, you know, if Smith is hurt. So I think if they play their cards right, they can kind of have the best of both worlds. Yeah, I mean, if you're Geno, you be as greedy as possible. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, you struggled so much in your career. You've been a punching bag in your whole career. Now you're finally having success. Capitalize as much as you can. Get as much money as you can. And don't give the Seahawks a hometown discount. Like, you cannot do that. Um, you, you got to give it. You got to give him a lot of credit. I mean, just the battle what he's battled through, and that Seahawks offense has been really good. And now they're probably going to make the playoffs when nobody expects them to. So yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be very interesting. They're seven and five after you know at, at this point they've got a shot. Meanwhile, um, you know you got a seventy one year old head coach. I actually think there's some things here that have played to the Seahawks' favor when, that maybe we all didn't see coming. Number one. They drafted some offensive linemen. They drafted two offensive tackles that, you know, the kid from Mississippi State has been a superstar. They have really shored up some problems in the offensive line. They don't have Russell Wilson around. They are uh, they were able, you know, to just say, hey, we're going to go to Geno Smith. And, and uh, you also have a quarterback who's a little more seasoned. I don't want to say he's old at 32, but he's as old as Oregon's offensive coordinator, the new coordinator. So it's it's a kind of a wild story that Geno Smith couldn't play in New York. He's a bust. Goes to Seattle, paired pair him with a 71-year-old head coach to a team that is in a rebuild, and he suddenly looks pretty good. Leads the NFL in completion percentage, tied for fourth in passing touchdowns. Um, and I think he's benefiting, though, from a couple things. Like your Rams, Peter, took a big step backward. The Cardinals were supposed to be good. They weren't. The 49ers have been good, but not great. So I think that that division that was so good a year ago it looks a little softer. And But I think it's the combination of the 71-year-old Pete Carroll, the 32-year-old uh, quarterback, not all the pressure on him, a better offensive line, and maybe the competition isn't as good in the NFC West. And so suddenly he, you know, he looks pretty good. So if I'm Geno Smith, I don't want to go to a new team. I don't want to have to start over and if i'm pete carroll like you draft maybe you draft the quarterback of the future but is geno smith your guy can can the seahawks win with him next year do you if you're geno and you say you want to stay in seattle do you give them some type of discount i would i i you know i look if the average salary is 32 million you know i do think he's going to get other offers because i think some other teams will think he can play but i don't think the teams are going to fall all over themselves to get him because i think the fear is going to be that he was the right guy 
in Seattle in this circumstance. And I don't know how I don't I'm not in that Seahawks locker room, so I can't tell if part of the incentive in that locker room is maybe that locker room just did not like Russell Wilson to the point where it is galvanized in his absence, you know, and maybe they just as a team they were like, let's show the world that we weren't just Russell Wilson. Now, granted, they're seven and five. They're not sitting at eleven and one. They're not sitting you know, they're not they're not the Eagles. They're not the Vikings. But they're they've been better than expected because if you would have told me that the NFC West was going to have two teams at four and eight and three and nine, I would have guessed Seattle was going to be one of those two teams. Uh, I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575. What do you make of that? And are the Seahawks the biggest surprise in in the NFL? Are they the biggest surprise? Because I've heard people trotting that around, and I'm looking around the league, and I'm going, look, um, maybe like my, maybe people saw Miami coming. Maybe people uh, thought that, uh, you know, is it a bigger surprise that Denver's 3-9? and nine? I think that's a bigger surprise than Seattle being 7-5. and five. The crazy thing about the NFC West, John, is the Seahawks have by far the most stable quarterback situation in it. Like, it's ridiculous. Going into the season, there's yeah. no way that you would have said that, and it, it's not even close. Yeah, who like, well, let's rate those four teams as far as stability is concerned. Seahawks won. Who has the second most stable quarterback spot? Arizona? I mean, like, probably. I, or not the Rams, Rams I mean, or the Niners. You can't. It's but, not the Rams. But the Rams, at least if Stafford's healthy, we know that he's the guy. I, I'm not Maybe confident not. about that elbow, man. Age and the elbow, I, I'm not feeling good about and that. And then with the Cardinals, are they choosing Kingsbury or Kyler Murray? Like, or are they both gone? I mean, it's... It's ugly. Is it Brock that, Purdy? Is he I've the number seen, two stable option? Is Brock, Brock Purdy going to emerge as the best quarterback of the NFC West by the end of the season? That would be a question. Uh, Tony's in Oregon City. Tony, what's on your mind? Tony, go ahead. Russell Will. This reminds me when Russell Will. You're breaking up. And the, the Seahawks had time to be able to put um, money elsewhere. And um, they were successful. They went to the Super Bowl. So why not have it that way with Geno Smith now? Yeah, the problem's going to be Geno Smith's agent who's going to say, look, he's play, He's not a rookie. He's not going to be on a rookie contract. This is what he deserves. This is what he merits. And, oh, by the way, uh, he has the ability to go out and and weigh some other offers against the Seahawks and and put them in a in a tough position. So I think there's some of that that could be in play here. Uh, but if I'm him, like to Stephen, to your point, I do. I I give the Seahawks a discount because they took a shot on me. And, yeah. and I think you know that might be the right. right? Like it's it, it wouldn't be that much of a discount either. Like you're saying, if the average quarterback is thirty plus million and you're taking twenty four, twenty five million, like you're still getting paid. Brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know today. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. But the big splash. Well, former Dallas Cowboys coach Jason Garrett has emerged as one of the finalists for the Stanford head coaching job. Sacramento State's Troy Taylor, who turned in a perfect regular season, is also a finalist. Garrett is currently working for NBC Sports as an analyst and uh, is seen to be the front runner for the job. I wrote about it a little bit today, but Stanford can hire whoever they want for that job, and I think Garrett will probably get the job, and if he does, if he wants it, if he doesn't, it'll go to Taylor. But the truth is that Stanford, they only had one player arrive 
last year via the transfer portal. They got one player because of their academic standards. Arizona had 21. Arizona State had 20. It shows you what Stanford's up against. It's too much. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. We're going to play some punch and audio in this segment. We'll get you caught up on everything that's going on in sports. I appreciate everybody who made the BFT Foundation Radiothon and Auction on yesterday's show part of their day. Really successful day for kids in our state. Really appreciate everybody who joined in in that. And if you're somebody out there that, that missed it, you want to give, you want to participate, you can still go to baldfacetruth.org and make a tax-deductible donation to the 501c3. You can do that today. Baldfacetruth.org if you want to check that out. Really, uh, really got some interesting emails, too. I got an email from a guy who said, hey, uh, I, I don't have a lot to give. He says, I can't afford the auction items. I don't feel like I'm going to make a difference. And I told him, I said, look, here's how you make a difference. If you're in that situation and you still want to help, get on your social media. Encourage other people to go to baldfacetruth.org. Tell people about the foundation. When you meet people, tell them you know, how much, if you believe in what the foundation is doing, you tell people about it. I think that uh, really goes a long way in helping elevate and uh, and let other people know what's going on with the nonprofit organization. So um, big successful day yesterday. Appreciate the radio stations that you're listening to for buying in on it. It's uh, always a lot of fun. I try to tell people, I say it's not a traditional, like I grew up watching the like Jerry Lewis telethon. It would go on for several days on TV. Peter, you remember that, the Jerry Lewis telethon? They would I, raise money for muscular dystrophy. I do, man. It was it was awesome and very lengthy at the same time. Labor Day weekend. They would I, they'd start that thing. I think they started they started on Friday night and go all the way to Sunday night. Something like that. Yeah. It was uh it was pretty amazing. Like it it was a marathon telethon. And you basically were watching Jerry Lewis kind of melt down before your eyes over several days every time you did it. Yeah. But it showed the strength of television is what it did. It was, you know, originally when they started it, they would do like, uh, you know, they would do like just a couple of hours. But I, I think it went days. And uh, and I remember like no at no point in time now would you have uh, a Labor Day weekend event like span over broadcast television over several days. And I remember like in the 70s, they raised like a million dollars one year. And it was like, a, like that's a lot of money. Like in today's world, they make a couple phone calls and they get that. But they had great guests and there was a variety show. So I try to tell people like it's not that kind of radiothon. Like we're not doing, uh, you know, we're not going to put people to sleep. And I thought yesterday we had a great discussion. And I had several people reach out to me who had never heard the Radiothon before and said, hey, that was a really entertaining fundraiser. Yeah, 
We're not serving rice pilaf and rubber chicken over here. We're not like, you know, we're not tap dancing. It's no Jerry Lewis thing, but we also, we brought Jonathan Smith on. I thought it was a really good interview yesterday. He joined us from the airport. He just landed. He was out recruiting. He was in a different headspace. Like I noticed right away, we weren't getting the normal sort of reserved uh, Jonathan Smith. We got kind of a different animal on yesterday's show, and I thought he was really good. And he was, you know, sort of talking about, you know, the fact that he's out recruiting and he's talking about the coach of the year. He's really funny. I asked him about Kalen DeBoer. You know, was he, uh, you know, was he, uh, you know, did he talk to DeBoer about them both being coach of the year and sharing that honor? And he said no. And he said, but he wanted to text him and he would have told him that, uh, you know, I might have won the thing outright if I didn't vote for you. Like, I thought that was really funny. Well, there was a good moment. It was a nice moment for Jonathan Smith on the show. And, and granted, we got to soften the guy up a little bit. We're getting him in the 5 o'clock hour, but he's talking about playing the trumpet. For crying out loud, he played a trumpet as a kid. And, but, but I feel like Oregon State's band, there's an opportunity here. In the same way early in the year, we brought Bo Nix on this show, and he talked about how much he loved Chick-fil-A. I asked him, what do you miss from Alabama? And he said, oh, I miss Chick-fil-A. There's no Chick-fil-A in Eugene. What happened like a week later? Chick-fil-A has a truck in Eugene, and Bo Nix is on it, and they're serving him Chick-fil-A. And, uh, and Oregon's director of football operations reached out to me and said, hey, look at this. And Oregon's sports information director, Nate Kruger, who's in charge of football, he said, hey, this doesn't happen if he doesn't come on your show. Look what happened. And I was like, man, that's really cool. Bo Nix got Chick-fil-A because he came on the show. Jonathan Smith. Yesterday, said as a kid, he played the piano and he, he tried the trumpet, but he never got good enough with a trumpet. Like, he doesn't think he could play a note right now. It, and anybody who's ever had, like, a trumpet or a trombone or a saxophone in your hands, Peter, you could probably attest to this. Those are not easy instruments to play. Oh, man, some serious core strength going on to be able to get even just a note to come out. I know, because they we have... I've had, like, when I was in elementary school, a guy with a trumpet who played the trumpet was fantastic, came to our school. And he said, you know, it looks real easy. And then he called somebody up and said, hey, try to play a note. They couldn't even blow into the instrument enough to make, have it make a sound, like you said. I mean, it's just, it's really difficult. So if I'm Oregon State, Jonathan Smith is going, you know, you're never too old to learn. Like, get him with your trumpet teacher. Do they have a trumpet teacher? What do you call that person? Just a musician? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Get the trumpet person at Oregon State's band. The What do we call it? Trumpeteer? What Ins- is that? The trumpet instructor? Is there a trumpet coach uh, that works with the band? Like, I got to know. Um, you know, get pretty soon we'll get Jonathan Smith, and all of a sudden, you know, maybe he comes out. And instead of, you know, they're like, ladies and gentlemen, please rise for the national anthem. Jonathan Smith emerges with a trumpet at midfield. And, he, and he's suddenly, you know, he's Chuck Mancini, you know, and, and he's, he's, he lights up that whole stadium. Come on. There's an opportunity. At least there's a social media opportunity. If we can get Chick-fil-A to send a truck to Eugene with the power of this show, I'm certain that we can get a trumpet in Jonathan Smith's hands. If Jonathan Smith comes out and plays the blazer trumpets instead of the national anthem, that would be oh. on social media yeah, da, 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 for da, da, da. sure. But, you know, Stanford does that 
you know, and I'm going to drive you crazy here, Stephen. We're just going to move Punch It Audio back because I'm on a tangent here. That's okay. One segment back. Okay. But Stanford does this really cool thing. Anybody who's ever seen Stanford play a home football game, few and far between. It's an exclusive crowd. But they will bring out the entire Stanford band. And they're on the field. They have this great reputation of kind of being wild and crazy. They all get out of the field. The tree's out on the field. You know, and there's this big buildup to the national anthem. And then they say, please rise for the national anthem. And then everybody gets up. And you're kind of looking at the band down on the field. And then the band goes silent. And then there's about a half a beat. And a lone trumpet player appears in the end of the stadium, at the top row of the stadium, in the end zone. The worst seat in the house. And he plays a solo national anthem. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the most beautiful thing at the Stanford football game. Let's just leave it at that. But it's 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 a really cool thing. Like I could see Oregon State's band having all this buildup. You know, they got the chainsaws, they got the dancers, they got the flag people, the spirit crew or whatever it is in the stadium. You know, everything's good. And then please rise for the national anthem. And here comes Jonathan Smith and a trumpet. And that's it. It's a solo. That's where we're headed. Now, now I don't know if he'll go for it because he's got to coach a football game. But bring him out for a basketball game. Let him play Gil Coliseum. You know, it, he doesn't have to be great. Just teach him, you know, teach him the notes to the national anthem. Come on. I think we can get him through that. But do you think that would bother him if he wasn't great? Because he's, you know, he's great at a lot of things. Like, he's one of those perfectionist type people. Uh, he strikes me as somebody that if he's not going to be good at it, he doesn't do it. Yeah. Period. End of it. Like, he he is a specialist. I think you're right. I've watched him. He's a funny guy because I think behind the scenes, he's a lot more emotionally up and down than he does present to the public. Because we've seen the videos of him in the locker room where he's jumping around and he's kind of losing it. But he's very even keeled. Uh, I ran into him. I, I told this story before, but I don't think everybody probably who's listening was here for this. You know, right before the Civil War game, the Oregon point spread flipped, right? It went from... Oregon was a three-point favorite, two-and-a-half-point favorite, went down to one, and then it flipped, and it went Oregon State as a one-point favorite. Like, the line, it doesn't, that doesn't happen except for a reason. Now, somebody mentioned it to me in the press box at Reeser Stadium. I was thinking about it. I went down to the field, and I bump into Jonathan Smith on the field. He just walked out of the locker room. I happened to be on the field. I see him. I said, hey, and he says, uh, hey, and he's very serious. He says, hey, what's going on with the point spread? He goes, what happened there? Makes me nervous. Like, he didn't he didn't like the idea that there was something going on he didn't know about. And, it, and we ultimately know now it wasn't an injury to Bo Nix. It was Kenny Dillingham getting the Arizona State job and some of those sharp betters who were like, oh, he's going to be distracted, going, hey, we're not going to get the best performance from Oregon's offense. And as it turned out, it that may have played a role in this game, the distraction of that. Really interesting to kind of think about. But, yeah, I do think we need to uh, get the band director from Oregon State on the show, and we need to talk about, you know, what will it take to get a trumpet in Jonathan Smith's hands? And, oh, by the way, is he interested in it, or was he just was he just doing a radio interview where he pretended to be interested in it? I, I will call his bluff on that one. All right, Punch It Audio is coming up. We have the best sound. I want you here for it. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
Now I got trumpet people dropping into my DMs, telling me uh, all I, more than I need to know about trumpets. That's okay. That's why you come to the show. We talk music, sports, entertainment. Peter Sampson will tell you about the latest cocktail he's been mixing or the food he's been making. Peter, what are you making? You spatchcocking something now? Uh, I'm not spatchcocking anything, but the uh, most recent thing in my kitchen was last night a uh, about a 240, 250-year-old uh, Croatian cabbage uh, soup recipe wow. uh, was put together. It looks terrible, and it is delicious. That's way better than having a 240-pound Croatian in your kitchen. <laughs> you know? That's uh, true. Hey, uh, do you have a fire extinguisher in your kitchen? I do. I do. I have one in the kitchen, and I have one in the upstairs bedroom. Is it a uh, is it a decent one? It's fairly new. Like I had a friend who had a kitchen fire recently, and I'll give the Cliff Notes version of this. He he uh, went. He was going to bed, and he didn't realize the toaster was plugged in. You know how like sometimes, you know, people who rarely or infrequently use a toaster will have it in like one of those uh, cabinet cubbies or maybe stuffed back behind a bunch of stuff in their kitchen. He uh, was walking by his toaster, and he kind of pushed it back against the wall. And what he didn't realize is when he pushed it back, he pushed the toaster handle down, mm. which made the toaster think it was toasting bread. Now, some toasters won't turn on unless there's toast in the toaster. Uh, but apparently his did. He didn't know that. He went to bed, and then he said, uh, I think he went to get a drink of water. So he went back to his kitchen. Luckily, because otherwise he would have been asleep, and his kitchen was filled with smoke, and there was a fire going on. He had no extinguisher. He grabbed the fire extinguisher by the cord as it was burning, and the the flames were burning up the wall, and he threw it into his backyard because that's what you do. But it was the it was nighttime, and he was then trying to call nine one one. But when he threw the toaster into his backyard, the cell phone that he had in his other hand went with it. He had had his phone in his hand, so he had no phone to call 911. So he's all of a sudden like looking for his phone while his kitchen was burning and he had no fire extinguisher. The fire department showed up and they put it out and he got out of the house and he's okay. There's a bunch of damage, of course. But um, he said to me, do you have an extinguisher? And I was like, we do. And and then I started thinking, how old is the fire extinguisher? Like how many years has it been there? Steven, do you have a fire extinguisher in your kitchen? Uh, not that I know of. See, I should probably get one. I have one in my car. Uh, it was a, it's a, it's the law to have one in the car when you drive Uber and Lyft. So I have one in there. So I figure if I need one, I'll just sprint out to the car real quick. Just do me a favor. You got kids. Like after I heard that, I I started thinking about it, and then I saw another fire safety, um, you know, for for Thanksgiving there was a fire safety PSA that was on, and it was a veteran firefighter who said that 80% of house fires start in the kitchen. Have a fire extinguisher in your kitchen. And that was the biggest thing. Now, I I couldn't tell you right now it's in one of the cabinets. I'd be that guy fumbling around going, which cabinet is the extinguisher in? So I need to, after I do this show, I will go check it. But, Stephen, go get a fire extinguisher. Will do. I'll put it on my Christmas list, and uh, hopefully Santa brings one for me. There you go. Let's play some punch it audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. 
Josh Pate talking about Bo Nix. Should he stay or should he go? Bo at Oregon. Pate says he could improve his draft stock. Punch it. I do think it's possible. I think it would be in his best interest to come back to Oregon. I know that when we're talking about these quarterback dominoes, obviously a lot of people are waiting on that. Um, I, his coordinator just left to go to Arizona State. And I think that Kenny Dillingham and Bo Nix, that was a perfect marriage of OC and QB out there at the perfect time for Oregon. But I still, man, I watched him this year. And see, I lived down in West Central Georgia when he was in high school at Hewitt Trustville. And he was coming out of high school, and man, he was good. I watched him in the state championship games down there. And just a dynamite talent. And I think he committed to the wrong program because he committed to Gus Malzahn in in a time where they weren't really developing the quarterback position. And he played for like three different coordinators in three years, and you just never got to see him maximize his talent. This past Bo Nix, the one you saw this past year, that's the one a lot of us expected from the jump. And I think we've only scratched the surface of, you know, what his body of work could look like. I think he would greatly enhance his stock if he came back another year. You might be right, but I also think there's a ceiling on what Bo Nix could be at the next level. And I think we found out late in the year but what he's really risking if he comes back is an injury. Like, would I like to see him back selfishly? Yeah, I'd like to see Bo Nix back for another year because I think Oregon could be pretty good with Bo Nix at quarterback. And I think he would bridge them to the next era, Dante Moore, whoever it is, at Oregon. But the way that Bo Nix talked during the year, including his interviews on this show, led me to believe that he wasn't a guy that was interested in sticking around for one more year, and it had to do with sort of the totality of his life. Bo Nix got married. Bo Nix got his degree. He was at Oregon, and he was taking, like, a yoga class. Like, it, there wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't a lot left for Bo Nix to do in college. You know, he played at two different places. I did not get the impression that Bo Nix came to Eugene thinking, oh, I'll do two years there. No, it was a one-year thing. George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner, talking about the UC Regents decision coming up on December 14th. Will UCLA stay or go? How about that? And Deion Sanders going to Colorado. Was there a re- Were these things connected? Did the Pac-12 wait and wait, not just for the Regents, but for Deion Sanders as well? George Klyovkov speaking in Las Vegas to media and to the SBJ Intercollegiate Athletics Forum. Punch it. You know, you know, but for the UCLA and USC news, we would have been in the market in the first quarter of next year. That would have been the natural time. Uh, we rushed into the market after the news to add stability to the conference. And uh, our conference is now very stable, the 10, the 10 members that are going to be with us. So um, a couple things happened. I mean, as you know, the California regents are still reviewing the decision about UCLA leaving. We didn't think it made sense to close a media rights deal before that decision was made. And we knew about some other news that was coming up in our conference, you know, the the, um, addition of Coach Prime as an example, that we thought made sense for that to happen before we went out into the media market. Um, and closed our deal. So we'll be back out in the first quarter. We'll close our deal. We've had great conversations with multiple partners. I'm really excited about where that's going to land, but no news for the rest of the year. No news, George Klyovka says, for the rest of the year. Is it, am I the only one that finds it weird to hear a grown man talking about, like, in a commissioner role, wearing a suit, calling Deion Sanders Coach Prime? 
I don't know. I, mean, I, like, I like to do it. <laughs> Coach Prime. Does it worry you? Are you getting worried as, day, as the days go on? I am about this whole Pac-12 media deal. No. I think they're waiting for the – I think the real reason, I think he's tr- I think he's trying to downplay the importance of December 14th and the decision on UCLA. You might be right. Like, you may be right. Hey, it's dragging on. Maybe this isn't good. But I think all along, like, what we know about the media companies is they don't they don't do business in the last two weeks of the year. So I think December 14th, when the Regents pushed their – pushed their meeting back. I think it pushed everything back into January. So I think he's trying to manage expectations by saying next year. And I think he's trying to maybe take a little bit of the fire out of the decision on December 14th if it doesn't go his way. Let's say the Regents come out and they go, hey, we have no authority to stop UCLA and we're not going to penalize them. God bless you. Go beat Ohio State. Go to the Big Ten. I think Klyovkov can now say, well, we weren't just waiting for the Regents. We also had things like Coach Prime in play. I don't believe him. I think it's all about the Regents. And I think the Pac-12 is hoping that the Regents put UCLA in a position that they reverse course. Because how do you cut a media deal if you don't know if the L.A. market is part of your conference or not? You can't. So I think it was all about waiting to December 14th. We'll find out what's going to happen there. John, real quick, do you think Coach Prime adds any value to the media rights deal? That's the next subject. Oh, because George Klyovkov talked about that. And I, I'm, I disagree with Klyovkov on this one. Punch it. He is a proven winning coach. Sure. Exactly. Yeah, so I don't think calling it an experiment is, is fair. Okay. Uh, what I will say is, um, for me, it's another example of our school making an investment on football and getting an immediate return on that investment. Um, season ticket sales, sponsorships, donors, the collective, everything is stepping up to support Deion Sanders. And I welcome him to the conference. I think it's going to be great for the conference. I, you know, their first two games next year are on the road at TCU. That's going to be a great game. I can't imagine what the ratings are going to be for that game. And their second game is a home game against Nebraska, rekindling of that great rivalry. And by the way, the fact that it's a Big Ten, Pac-12 game, even better. So, can't wait for that game. Look, uh, George Klyovkov tried to make the case that the media rights package was more valuable with Deion Sanders at Colorado. My initial response to that was, no, 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 no. And he he tried to sell that to me on Friday in Las Vegas when I was at the Pac-12 championship game. He said, you can speculate all you want that, you know, we may have a more valuable product with if Deion Sanders is involved in it. And I ran that by Bob Thompson, the former Fox Sports Network's president, because I don't know. Like, my gut reaction is, hey, this is good for the brand of the conference. It's exciting. It's interesting. It, it'll sell some tickets and some sponsorships in Colorado, but it's not going to add value to a $500 million or a $700 million deal, is it? But I ran it by Bob Thompson, and he said uh, that nobody that anybody's going to hire is going to cause the TV executives to go back and go, oh, we need to change our figures. It's just not enough. So to your point, Stephen, no. I don't think Deion Sanders changes the math one bit, and if they're trying to sell us that, I don't believe it. I won't, I, I won't accept it as an answer unless ESPN or Amazon or somebody tells me that. And that's not even if... Like if what if what if part of the deal is 
Pac-12 is telling Amazon, hey, you can do a reality television show and you're going to get prime time as part of it. Even if that deal is worth $20 million to the Pac-12 conference, that's not moving the needle on a $700 million or $500 million deal. It's just, it's, it's, it's a throw-in. So, no, I don't think the Pac-12's media rights are worth more. And, you know, Klyovkov tried to clarify today and say that, you know, what he was talking about is if Colorado, that's, you know, what if Colorado wins some more games? They'll be worth more. But if Colorado wins more games, that means somebody in the conference is probably losing more games. So, you know, did Lincoln Riley add, change the, change the math on the Pac-12 media rights? No. Did he make USC more interesting? Yes. Did he, did it, was it good for the conference? Absolutely. Chip Kelly, same thing. It's a good hire for the Pac-12, but let's not get carried away. And those type of comments that he's making of, you know, Coach Prime is adding value to the conference, that's what makes me nervous because I'm with you. I don't think it adds anything, any more value to the conference, but he, Klyovkov keeps coming out and saying these type of things, and so now I keep going back to, well, this is the Pac-12. Something bad's just going to happen. They're going to pull the rug from my feet, and something bad's <laughs> happening. So, uh, you know, maybe that's just me being... You've been trained. Gene. Yeah, I've been trained. You've been so trained. I, I don't know. Well, it may be that... You know, it may be that they know UCLA is not reversing course and they're trying to prepare expectations. Maybe that's what you're sensing. Pay attention to that. Don't deny that. I think instinct is important. You know, you, you've been around. You've watched it. So it may be that George Klyovkov has some intel and he knows, hey, we're not getting UCLA back. So I can't make us waiting just about waiting for the UCLA decision because it makes you look bad. So I, I just think... There's about a 10% chance UCLA is told on the 14th, that is six days from now, that they will be heading back to the Pac-12. About a 10% chance. If that happens, the Pac-12's media rights are worth more. Not because Chip Kelly's in the conference, but because LA's TV market and 5.7 million households are in the conference. That's what it's about. Deion Sanders, great for the conference. Don't get me wrong. But it doesn't change math. Kenny Dillingham, new coach at Arizona State. He's talking about local kids. Wants them to stay home. Here's the pitch from Dilly. Punch it. If we can keep the core of the players home, if we can keep the players in this state to say, hey, I'm going to be the change. I'm going to be the change. Not, oh, well, it hasn't changed yet, so I, I, if, they, if this player came here, I would come here. Or if this player came here, I would come here. No. I'm going to be the player that decides to come here that's the five-star, the high four-star, the elite player. I'm going to be the change. But that kid right now has other options. How do you get that kid to say, you know what, I'm going to take a chance on you? Because it's not a chance. And what I say like that is it's not a chance because if a kid like that or if a group of kids like that chose to stay home, they'd be legends forever. And when you talk about college football, to be ready for the rest of your life, Imagine a group of kids, the elite players, choose to stay home as a group to change Arizona State football forever in the valley in which they'll retire and start their own business. The investment that they would make by coming here is going to wreak millions of dollars for them in the future. I think it means reap, but I get it. And I think Kenny Dillingham has got some enthusiasm. He's in a conference right now. 
though, where he's up against some really good coaches. He's up against Kyle Whittingham. He's up against Chip Kelly for a year. He's up against Lincoln Riley. He's up against Jed Fish at Arizona, who's got it going. He's up against the machine at Oregon. He's out now up against Coach Prime at Colorado. Like, if I'm Arizona State, what you have to do is you got to do it a little differently. And I think Kenny Dillingham is trying to say, let's put a fence around our region because it is one of the larger population bases in the conference, and let's keep all the talent that's within that region. Good for him for doing that. Let's see if it works because I think there's some recruiting pitches around this conference that are really compelling right now. Bridget Condon talking about Brock Purdy and the 49ers. Is he the answer at quarterback? Punch it. Brock Purdy will try and get that first win over Tom Brady. So how does he do it? Well, Kyle Shanahan said yesterday there hasn't been a drastic change going from Jimmy Garoppolo to Brock Purdy. He said it was a bigger change going from Trey Lance to Garoppolo because of the running element that Lance presents. So he said Garoppolo and Purdy have a lot of similar skill sets, and they're going to do what they always do, right? Those short passes to the skill players and let them take off from there. That yards after catch, that is the identity of this 49ers team. And now with Purdy under center, nothing changes. So how much confidence does this team have in this guy, Mr. Irrelevant? Well, I was talking to left tackle Trent Williams in the locker room yesterday, and he told me when Purdy's in the huddle, you would think this guy has been in the league 15 years. He even compared him to Peyton Manning, saying he's not afraid to tell guys to stop talking or to call out players when they're not doing well. And he also said, look, this guy is 6'1", 220. He's a smaller quarterback. He got here somehow, and that's because of his mindset and his mentality, Baldy. Yeah, Brock Purdy's interesting. He's not like a rookie who hasn't been in big games. In college, he started 47 games. He's played some football. But I was really impressed. And again, we're talking about a week 12, week 13 substitution, same as the Falcons. I was really impressed at how good he looked when he came into the game the other day. I thought it would be a big drop-off. I wonder if the timing of this injury to Jimmy Garoppolo helps. Sure. I also wonder if the fact that Jimmy Garoppolo wasn't even the starter at the beginning of the year helps. That the Niners are now on their third quarterback this season with the injury... Uh, that that happened early on. So if I'm reading the tea leaves, yeah, there's some wait and see here going on with Niner Nation or whatever they're calling themselves. But I also think, like, let's see if maybe this guy can come in, doesn't have to put a team on his back and throw for 300 yards a game because Jimmy Garoppolo wasn't doing that. Can he manage this offense? Really interesting math here going on in the NFL is quarterbacks, we're at that point of the year where a lot of teams are scrambling. The question is, John, is are you comfortable enough taking him laying three and a half points to Tom Brady? I really think the Buccaneers offense against the 49ers defense, how many points are the Buccaneers going to score in this game? I don't know, but you're telling me that Mr. Irrelevant is a three and a half point favorite over the GOAT? <laughs> and I'm not supposed to take Tom Brady on the money line? I don't know. Uh... Is that what you're telling me, John? I'm not convinced that the Buccaneers can get more than about 10 or 14 points in the game. Can the Niners get to 17 or 21? That's going to be their their math for most of the year, I think. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Tom Brady was great, though, on Monday Night Football, wasn't he? Wasn't that fun to watch? Yeah. That's nice a good come. time watching that. Uh, I, I don't know. Niners defense against Tom Brady in that offense. If, I, if I'm the Buccaneers, I'm not looking forward to this week. Uh, I think it could be a long game for them, but... 
the big one is, that everybody's circling on the calendar is coming up. Uh, it's a Thursday night game on the de- December the 15th. That's next Thursday. Super Niners, Seattle for the mm-hmm. division, maybe. I know Jude will be excited about that one. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the thing. I mean, that, that Seahawks offense has been good, but if you go back week two, I believe it was when they played San Francisco, zero points against that defense. You know, it's the it's the great question of who wins, better offense or better defense. Usually it's the defense, so uh, I like the Niners. Yeah, I don't know. I want to see how uh, Purdy plays, and, you know, Jude will not be able to take his eyes off Purdy's thighs. That's the thing. Leave, leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. It still bothers me that people in the state of Oregon are not allowed to wager on college sporting events. It doesn't bother me because I want to put a bet down on a college sporting event. Uh, it bothers me because I think there's a lost opportunity for the state of Oregon. And and I know that uh, the House bill that was presented in the last legislative session that would have allowed it was designed to help low-income college students um, make some more money and have some money that uh, uh, could help defray the cost of their education. And what happened was that the uh, the lobbyists that were interested in blocking this thing, and there's a variety of people who have a, an interest in blocking it, uh, the lobbyists basically came out and blocked the damn thing. Uh, here was the hearing for House Bill 1503, and President of the Oregon Senate, Peter Courtney, was arguing on behalf of of college wagering and he was getting some pushback. Oregon needs regulation and oversight for college sports. Although college sports betting is common, Oregonians don't have a way to place their bets legally. The unregulated black market only encourages high wagers and unsafe betting practices. Okay, there was that. And then he got some pushback during the hearing. Mr. President, I just asked, how, how are you feeling these days? What do you mean, how am I feeling? Gerard asked the question. I'm not feeling good at all because of Gerard. Now he's gone off screen. Would you feel good if you got asked a question in a public forum like that? I'll let the examiner, and can I get back with you? Do you have a question to me about this, about this idea? Do you like it or not? No, I actually, uh, I think that uh, you're you're on a good path. Actually, I do. Uh, how we land it uh, is is what we're going to consider. <laughs> what in? I, <laughs> you know, I don't think I want him a pilot in my airplane because that guy. I think well, so. I don't know how we're going to land. We'll think about it. And we're planning to land the plane. And how are we going to land the thing? Well, I think we'll just think about it. He's the pilot. <laughs> Basically, they, they killed the bill. And Peter Courtney was not happy about it. I know he's a listener of the show. And he uh, he gives me a hard time occasionally on this show. But um, I I think what they basically did is they decided to launch a study 
they decided to uh, study the impact of this, and which just is code for killing the bill. So they killed Bill 1503, and there are some winners. The The tribal casinos that offer collegiate sports wagering won't have competition from the DraftKings app when it comes to that type of wagering, but I even think they could have allowed an exemption for the tribal sports books to allow wagering on college sporting events. Like, let them, let them create an app, and people can use it outside of – because I think right now, and Stephen and Peter help me out here, like, I don't know where people go, but I got a lot of friends who tell me they bet on college games, and I'm like, where are you betting on college games? Like, the only place I know to go is Vegas. Yeah, uh, you can go to either Spirit Mountain or Alan A has it as well now. Alan A Sportsbook is open, so uh, I've gone up there a few times uh, just because it's closer. But where are people going that they shouldn't be going to bet on college games? There are various online sites yes. that you can uh, access. I may or may not have a few of those as well. Okay, cause, so give me an idea. How like how does that work? Like, is it an offshore thing? Are you are you even trading in dollars? Are you trading in some foreign currency or crypto? Or what are you doing? Uh, with the one that I use, you can use whatever you want. I've seen them where it requires crypto, and there's all the weird stuff with that. But it's to the point where uh, the one that I use, you can use dollars. You can use whatever you want. It's easy to get a deposit or and a, a, a payout, which I know that's kind of the risk, though, right, is you never yeah. know what you're going to get. And all of a sudden, you don't want to run that risk of like, cool, I just had a nice little you know, $500 payday. Am I actually going? to get this yeah it's the regulations of the offshore stuff that does get you and you and you're nervous about it um i do have i have a couple i have one that is all crypto that you uh use to uh so, pay for it so you have to have crypto in order to wager yeah so you deposit is that crypto. unsettling to you at all like you know that you like, like to peter's point that you might not get paid all i know is i've uh requested payouts and i've got them so uh i mean so, so far so good so far so good um so yeah i mean i you know i haven't had any real true true problems with the offshore stuff but it does in the back of my mind there's always a little sketch to it all right we're gonna look at the raiders and the rams game coming up in the next segment Plus, Punch It Audio coming up top of the hour. If you are a football fan, Thursday Night Football right here on 750 The Game today. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. A lot going on in sports, uh, but we got a football game. Thursday night football on Amazon Prime and also on 750 the game. Two really uh two two teams that we thought would be better. It's Peter Sampson's Rams against the Las Vegas Raiders. That'll never sound right. Five and seven Raiders, three and nine Rams. Guys, who do you like in the game? First of all, let's start there. If we have to talk about a bad NFL game, let's talk about a bad NFL Let game. Let me talk ask, I game? need to ask Peter a question. Is Baker Mayfield really gonna play for the Rams? And if so, what are you expecting out of him? Uh, well, I mean, that's the only reason to watch this game as a Rams fan is to see if and Baker is active tonight. Uh, and I don't expect anything good because he touched down, what, like 40 hours ago? I mean, you're you're cutting the playbook down to nothing. The Rams barely have a running game. But it's that kind of morbid curiosity, right? Just see him scramble around, see if he can make something happen, get yourself psyched up, and then he's not going to do much the rest of the year. Well, there you go. You sound really optimistic and <laughs> fired up about tonight. Rams are getting six and a half against the Raiders. Rams are at home. Uh, home 
home dog getting some points here. They, if they, this were a Pac-12 team, I'd take the Rams. They kept it close last week against the Seahawks. They uh, covered that one. I don't know. Six and a half is kind of a lot. I'd like it a lot better if it was seven. Game. Can the Rams win this game? Uh, Plus 235 on the money line. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't you have think no so. faith whatsoever. I mean, okay, look, I mean, uh, Wolford, I mean, he might do something. I mean, I, I just don't see it. I mean, I just don't see it with the Rams. They've taken such a huge step back this year, uh, and it's almost like they've sort of pulled the ripcord, right? Like they're kind of hanging in there, and you go, well, okay, Stafford might get healthy. The defense needs to step up a little bit, but things just seem to be spiraling. It's almost like the players understand that the season's over, so they can't can win this game. You could even make the argument that they uh, really should be in it, but I just don't see it. Total at 42. I think I kind of like the over in that one. The Raider, the Rams defense isn't very good. Yeah, Raiders are going to be scoring some points. I'm looking at the Rams, man, and, and just looking at their season. Like, 3-9 and nine after the Super Bowl? I mean, I, we've seen some teams fall off the cliff, but come on. This was supposed to be... You know, let's run it back one more time. It's, you know, Aaron Donald and everybody said that. How disappointed are you? Uh, relatively. I mean, this offseason, I said I expected a pretty big uh, uh, step backwards, but I did not expect three and nine. I uh, What I meant is like, yeah, I don't know, maybe 500, you know, nine and eight. If things go crazy, maybe they can go 10 and seven, but they're certainly not going to get back to the Super Bowl. But uh, I mean, honestly, they've lost six in a row. You know, the Niners, Buccaneers, Cards, Saints, Chiefs, Seahawks. I mean, a couple of those games were relatively close. But again, it's like it's like the balloon is just been deflated the, the question i have for you peter is is it worth it because they gave up all yes. those draft picks to get that super bowl yep super bowl champs baby it's totally worth it so that you you enjoyed that so much what, what was sweeter for you was it the braves or was, was it the Rams? <sighs> i i think it was the braves you know because uh 95 was a long time ago but that's part of my bias i'm just i like baseball a lot more than i like the nfl uh i've been a, a diehard braves fan a lot longer but i mean it was it was cool to see the rams you know they reached the super bowl you know against tom brady and the pats and just put up a terrible offensive performance it was sweet to see him win but i was i, I got a little Misty watching the Braves do it. I'm looking at the uh, Raiders offense. I feel like the Raiders might be good for about 28 to 30 points tonight in this game. And the problem the Rams have had is they have been good for 14 to 22 a game or so. So I think that number, a number scares me a little bit, Stephen, that you were talking about, like the over-under. Yeah. On point total, I think I think the number's pretty accurate. But Thursday night, weird stuff happens, and the Rams are at home, so maybe the Rams score a little better than they're used to. But I think I'm seeing it like uh, 30 to 24, maybe. That's That would go over. That would go 54. way over, yeah. It's 40, go 42. Over, so. There I think, you go. I think over's the play, guys. Is that the show bet today? Okay. Is that our show, our five-star show play <laughs> is the Raiders and Rams over 42 and a half? I'm in. Book it. I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing it right now as we. Are speak. you booking it right now? Yes. Jeez, are you offshore? Are you doing crypto right now? <laughs> no, or? no, no, no crypto on this one. But uh, <laughs> you know, you could get it at 42 right now in DraftKings. That's what I got it at 42. 42 yeah. Wow, look at you. I'm on it. This is it. Like, I mean, we're making I, stuff happen. What am I gonna do? Not bet on the game today? Like you know. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> oh man. It's odd. It's like what am I gonna? That's not bet. No, I'm, I'm gonna watch okay. the game. Okay. All right. 
that's we're giving we're giving people the uh, the over forty two is the official show bet of the day. DraftKings should give us like you know we should be able to pick like caller five. I guess that would be illegal. If caller five gets to uh, have the bet of the day and then they win if the bet wins. That's what it should be. I'd be down with that. That's pretty. You know cool. what I mean? Yeah. But I don't know if we can do that. I don't know if it's if it's legal because then we'd pretty much be running like yeah. we'd be a bookie. We have a gambling you know? ring going on. Yeah, people would be like, "Hey, that's not really a show. They're just, they're just. It's a, it's a front. <laughs> it's like Polly and Tony Soprano running the, running the book, uh, and and taking wagers." But we are uh, 17 minutes away from kickoff of the Rams and Raiders. Should have been a huge football game. Do you lean one way or another with the six and a half? You guys, you like the Raiders? You like the Rams? If we're if we're giving out a parlay. What's our pick? Yeah, if I have to make a pick, I would uh, I would take the Rams plus six and a half. I think it's just too many points at home, but I don't like that. I like I like our overplay way better, but I'm, I would lean Rams. All right. I'd, All right. I'd lean Raiders. I I, th- I think uh, the Rams are going to lose by seven. If we could get another half point, I'd feel way better. Yeah, I don't like it at all. I think that line is beautiful. Like the sports book knows what it's doing. Uh, th- those guys know what they're doing. Okay, can we make that clear? Mm-hmm. Like if you've been yeah. into it, I I was in the Vegas sports book recently. Uh, just with the uh, Pac-12 championship game, and I was looking around, and I was like, "This stuff, that all the stuff they have in here—the chandeliers, the the wood, the velvet curtains—you um, know, everything looks so nice, except for the gamblers who were sitting in the sports book. Everything was beautiful." And then I thought to myself, "You know what? There's a reason why they're the house. Like, you know, they get that." So, all right, coming up, the the five at five, five biggest stories going on. We'll lead you right into Thursday Night Football. Tomorrow we have a great show uh, with big guests on the show. We are going to uh, drill down on next week's UC Regents meeting, UCLA. What are the penalties? I'm efforting Bob Thompson, the Fox Sports, uh, former Fox Sports president. Love to get him on the show tomorrow to kind of talk about the media landscape of, of sports and have a smart discussion about that. But the five at five will be coming up top of the hour it's the five biggest, baddest things going on in sports. We bring it to you next. Leave it right here. You got the BFT statewide. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, it's been a fun show. We've talked a lot about the Ducks and the Beavers. If you missed the early part of the show, we talked about the coaching staffs, what goes into coaching. We dealt with uh, the release of Brittany Griner, Freed. We've talked a little bit about quarterbacks in the NFL, including the great Geno Smith, the Seattle Seahawks. But we haven't given you the five biggest, baddest stories in sports. And that's part of what I'm supposed to do here. It's my job. So we will do that. Here we go. The five at five. The five at five. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. Let's start with Brittany Griner. Freed. She's gone free. United States-Russia did a prisoner exchange. High-level exchange. Ten months in detention. The swap was uh, a swap that I I gotta be honest with you when I heard about it I was glad she was safe I was glad she was on a plane I was glad she was on a way on her way home but I'm uncomfortable with uh, you know an arms dealer being part of 
any kind of trade that involves sports. And Brittany Griner is only being talked about because she plays sports. We have a Marine who still remains captive in Russia. And I have questions about whether or not if it were you or me, if this deal would have been made. The answer is no. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that she's free. I'm uncomfortable with some elements of it. And I'll bet you are as well. Number two in our five at five. Let's talk about the new guy in the Rams uniform. Baker Mayfield is active tonight for Thursday night football. He was claimed off waivers 48 hours ago. He will be in uniform against the Raiders. I don't know if he's going to play, but it's interesting and it's a reason to tune in or listen as Thursday night football is coming up. Number three in our five at five. The Falcons have benched Marcus Mariota. We knew it was going to happen. We talked about it. We speculated about it. Mariota just hasn't been as sharp as he was earlier in his career. They benched him. Desmond Ritter, the rookie, will be taking over. He'll start. Falcons have lost four of five, scored more than 20 points just once in the last five games. Marcus Mariota will be on the bench. Jason Garrett and Troy Taylor are among the finalists for the Stanford job. This news uh, first reported by The Athletic. Former Dallas Cowboys coach Garrett, Sacramento State coach Troy Taylor, who just went undefeated in his regular season, are lined up for the Stanford job. I expect Garrett gets it if he wants it. The 56-year-old was the Cowboys coach for nine seasons, then became the New York Giants offensive coordinator. Now he's currently an analyst for NBC Sports. He fits. Garrett fits at Stanford. Dak Prescott went on the record, told reporters he's willing to talk to whoever he can to endorse him. Really good fit for Garrett at the college level. Taylor, meanwhile, he graduated from Cal. He's coaching at Sacramento State in the FCS quarterfinals on Friday. He's been at Sac State. He's won two Big Sky Conference Coach of the Year awards. In the wake of David Shaw, I think it's going to be Jason Garrett at Stanford. Troy Taylor is a fallback. Keep an eye on that. Finally, fifth thing in our five at five. Let's talk about Trey Turner in a Phillies uniform. Are you happy about that? Well, Bryce Harper lobbed the first recruiting pitch of the summer to Trey Turner. Said he was his favorite player in the league. Well, they've been reunited now. The National League champion Phillies, 11 years, $300 million finalized today. 29-year-old shortstop will be in his 40s when that deal comes up. It's a long-term risk, but Dave Dombrowski and John Middleton, the owner of the Phillies and the president of the Phillies, they're willing to take take a gander on this. Harper's got nine years left on his 11-year deal. He's recovering from an elbow surgery, but the Phillies, well-positioned, paying Turner just over $27 million in each of the next 10 seasons. That's our five at five. Five biggest stories going on. You know, I, I keep thinking about contracts in baseball. You know the Bobby Bonilla deal? Guys, like yeah. Bonilla's still getting like a million dollars a year every year. Like, 
that might still be the best deal that was ever made in baseball. And at the time, everybody was like, that is a ridiculous deal. Why are you going to be paying a guy, you know, into his 50s or whatever? He gets, uh, you know, he got a contract that just pays him deferred salary forever, and the Mets look really smart. Yeah. I mean, what is it, July 1st is July Bobby Bonilla Day? He gets $1.19 million every July 1st. <laughs> All the way to 2035. That's unbelievable. I mean, I remember, I remember when that happened, and we were all clowning it. And here he is; he's getting paid. And you look at the money now. You know, uh, Aaron Judge three hundred sixty million, Xander Bogarts two hundred and sixty million. It's a steal. It's a steal at one point two a year. Here's how it. Here's how it went down. Um, so they were really originally it was five point nine million dollars he was supposed to make in the year two thousand, and they said instead of paying you that 5.9 million dollars they deferred that and they said they'll stretch it out over 24 years at 8% interest so that 5.9 million will end up being 29.8 million pretty good investment by Bobby Bonilla pretty pretty smart and he will collect just under 1.2 million every July 1st until 2035 now i feel like it's a good deal for Bonilla it was also at the time a good deal for the for the Mets, because they were able to take, you know, everybody thinks Bonilla got a great deal, but, you know, there's taxes, there's inflation, and guess what? The Mets, in you know, presumably invested that $6 million somewhere. Did they get better than 8% return on it? I don't know. So, you know, Bonilla got a steal, but, but also the Mets got a steal there too, and the Mets got made fun of for doing this deal, but you know they'll be paying. Uh, they'll be paying Bobby Bonilla. You know, by by the way, Bonilla has another contract with the Orioles that pays him five hundred thousand a year for twenty five years. His agent was doing this like multiple times. I had no idea that he had that with another team. I mean, yeah, who second, find out who his agent is? Brett Saberhagen gets two hundred fifty thousand a year from the Mets for twenty five years. That began in 2004. Max Scherzer um, will get $105 million total, will be paid out through 2028. Um, Ken Griffey Jr. gets $3.59 million from the Reds every year through 2024. He deferred his nine years, $116 million deal that he signed in 2000. So he just gets $3.5 million every year through 2024. That's pretty good. So Benia's not the only one. It's just the longest contract that's out there yeah i mean the blazers they were paying anderson verajal's contract jeez up until what 2021 last season yeah i believe and he never played a minute for the blazers 2003 the highest paid blazer on that roster was sean kemp he was making 20 million he was nowhere near the blazers roster and they were paying him twenty million. I don't know if that was deferred or it was just a bad deal that the Blazers made when, they got, <laughs> when Kemp didn't work out. Uh, ended up having to pay it. All right, we're back tomorrow with another great show. Uh, the podcast of the show will be available immediately at the end of the show. Uh, Thursday night football is coming up here in Portland on seven fifty. The game. If you were listening locally, leave it here because you got the Raiders and you got the Rams and it's going over forty two. Yeah, you got the over to our, too. That's what to you our, got to our show pick. And we'll see how that works out. We're back tomorrow with another great show. Uh, for those of you who are looking to find where I write, you can find me at johnconzano.com. That's where I'm writing exclusively now. You can read my columns and insight and analysis, telling some fun stories there and having a lot of fun 
Uh, we are back tomorrow. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.